Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. The Menzies Foundation aspires to raise the profile and importance of outstanding leadership by encouraging Australians to reflect on leadership, pivot to purpose, build their leadership capability and act for the greater good. The Foundation supports leadership platforms to explore, deepen understanding and codify approaches to leadership. Our efforts to explore leadership from multiple perspectives supports the Foundation's strong focus on identifying leadership qualities and attributes that are key to leading in an Australian and global context. The Ninny and Stephen Law Program, Thinking for Emerging Technologies, is a four-year initiative in partnership with the University of Melbourne's Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Data Ethics, which brings together a collaboration between the Melbourne Law School and the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology. The program aims to build capacity in the legal profession to provide effective responses to the challenges of emerging technology. It brings together leaders from the legal profession and business, along with engineers, computer scientists, and technology specialists from both the private and public sectors in a program of research, collaboration, dissemination, teaching, and engagement. This initiative is supported by an outstanding board, uh, advisory board, comprised of Australian experts in the law, technology and ethics. And today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Cam Whitfield, our very esteemed chair of the advisory board. Cam is a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills, specialising in digital law, cybersecurity and emerging technologies, and an honorary senior fellow and lecturer at the Melbourne Law School. Prior to going back to private practice this year, Cam was a partner at PwC, focusing on digital and technology, cybersecurity and digital trust. Welcome, Cam. Thank you. Nice to be here. Very lovely to have you with us, Cam. When we first met, concerns regarding cybersecurity were evident, but over the last few years, these concerns have escalated and now seem to be dominating the national discourse. Uh, What do you think are the significant factors that have escalated? the concerns about cyber and the risk the world's facing? Uh, Liz, look, it's funny that you talk about when we first met because if you asked me this question even probably as recently as sort of five years ago, I would have given you a very different answer. And in fact, if you asked me five years ago what I was doing as a day job, I'd probably give you a very different answer. The risk landscape has changed in the cyberspace so materially. Uh, and at its heart, Liz, I look at this in, through a trust and risk lens, um, mainly because these incidents, these attacks, they look to exploit trust, um, our trust uh, in order to sort of get inside our IT ecosystems, if you like, and then they undermine it through um, through the attacks and then obviously undermine trust in our institutions, whether directly or indirectly and so um yes we are we are in a a very different environment but then when i ask myself why we're here or why we're here even talking about this i always go back to those fundamentals about trust and we can talk about cyber security in terms of sort of financial loss and reputation but at the end of the day i keep coming back to that trust lens and i and that's a lens which I look at not just in terms of the threat landscape and what it's doing to corporate Australia or or government bodies in, uh, in Australia, but I do so in the context of a 
relatively significant lack of trust between Australian consumers and Australian corporates. And it's not, this is not my view or, um, or, or just a sense I have. It comes out of various studies, including a work done by the Information Commissioner. Uh, and they uh, have at least demonstrated that a significant number of, um, of individuals find uh, Australian corporates untrustworthy when it comes to their data. In fact, very few find them very trustworthy. So we've got this trust deficit. Then we've got the cybersecurity issue on top of it. And we've got the cybersecurity issue that arises uh, in a context which historically has created a little bit of fatigue, fatigue around the discussion. Um, six or seven years ago, it was, a, it was certainly a top one, two or three issue for C uh, CEOs and boards here in Australia and globally. But it's probably only in recent times, Liz, that it's really crystallised and people have moved beyond that feeling of, yes, this is an interesting topic, we should get our head around. It's largely a technology issue, and I think we've evolved and matured in this space. The reality is, Liz, it's not good. Um, the cyber attacks that we're experiencing here in Australia and globally are materially more sophisticated, complex, and more frequent than anything we've ever experienced. And the asymmetry that exists between the threat and Corporate Australia, if I can put it that way, is is significant. One of one of our CEOs of a significant listed company uh, mentioned uh, that they deal with something in the order of 250 to 300 million cyber-related incidents every quarter. That's a few million a day. So in that context, think about that in terms of asymmetry. We have to defend a significant amount of uh, incidents or attacks, if I can put it that way. Yet, these three actors really need to get in once, effectively, to cause significant uh, issues for us. And, and as you know, these threat actors can vary, but uh, particularly those that are criminally minded, they are uh, very comfortable forming cartels, very comfortable sharing information uh, in relation to uh, vulnerable organisations. And by their very nature, they don't care for the law. Uh, whereas that is not the case, of course, with corporate Australia. So when I look at the changing landscape, I see all those things evolving and I feel that we're in a very, very different place. And having been through a number of these incidents, um, I can tell you the the impact is very, very significant. IT systems get shut down for significant periods of time. Um, you know, regulatory investigations can ensue, people can lose jobs, reputations are compromised, it, you know, customers and suppliers uh, can be co uh, compromised too. And so I don't want to be alarmist, Liz, but it's a pretty real risk at the moment and one that's certainly keeping people like me busy. So, Cam, it's, it's you know, it's so many, it's the, the context that you're describing is so indicative of much of the Foundation's work in leadership where ambiguity, uncertainty, leveraging multiple expertises, um, being mm. able to see the system versus working on the issue are all mm. absolutely paramount in leading today. When we first started this conversation, as I said a couple of years ago, Cam, you know, we were talking about lawyers finding themselves in situations where in order to understand the um, magnitude or even the complexity of the issue, there are different sort of type of skills that perhaps lawyers needed to access in order to work 
in these contexts that you're describing, computational mm. skills, strategic skills, um, you know, behavioural, different ways of thinking about the role that law plays in ameliorating or in supporting people to deal with emerging technologies and particularly the threats of cyber. What's what sort of how are you seeing that the land, the cyber landscape and the whole issue of emerging technologies is having an impact on the law? I think we actually have to take a step back from looking at um, perhaps the threat landscape and law as a profession and look at the impact that it's having more broadly on society and corporates more generally. I mean, we speak to many, um, or I've spoken to many corporates over the years and recent times, and some are concerned about the complexity that exists within their organisations, and some are concerned that they may be too complex to secure. Um, Many have, unfortunately, a blind spot for what I call third party or supply chain risks. And many, many of these incidents or uh, compromises come through that supply chain. And then, again, when we, when we look at perhaps less tangible things, there's also what I call a bit of a language problem that exists as well, where perhaps the language that exists or is spoken at a board or a CEO or a C-suite level is not necessarily the language that's spoken by the technology or cybersecurity experts in this space. And I, from time to time, feel there's a, there's a risk that there is a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding between the two. So when I look, when I ask myself the question, how's this impacting the law and the legal profession, the role, I have to do so in the context of me as a legal advisor in that more problematic environment. Um, certainly when it comes to the law and what this impact is having on the law, there's a couple of ways in which um, I would frame this up. One is in terms of, of course, the legislative landscape, and that is evolving very, very quickly. And in fact, I haven't seen a more significant or rapid uh, change in either the regulatory landscape or the legislative landscape in cyber uh, ever, in fact. And so that is moving at pace. And so um, much of my day is actually spent sometimes trying to work out how to deconstruct the omelette. <laughs> that is this melange of different laws and different um, demands that are placed on, on our clients. So, and that's complexity, unfortunately, in the legal environment's not going away. Traditionally, Liz, many of these cyber related discussions have been led through a privacy lens. And that's because uh, in many jurisdictions, um, privacy or at least privacy legislation that was the first set of laws, if you like, that pointed directly to what I call data, potential data compromises. And so privacy laws have been a bit of a proxy, but that is changing now. And you don't have to look too much further than what's happened in, in relation to the security of critical infrastructure and the reform agenda that got pushed through, through recently a little bit, came through last year and then was finished off early this year. So first of all, of course, the law is changing. Then, of course, the role of the lawyer is changing. And when I look at the role of the lawyer, I go, I go um, off my experience and what, how my practice has evolved in recent times and also what's demanded of me when these incidents occur or what is expected of me. And, and as a legal practitioner, um, when you're dealing with a significant incident, you're actually dealing with a crisis. And so you become 
uh, both a legal advisor, but you also become a manager of a crisis. And while we are excellent at the law and able to help um, uh, sort of describe the legal issues that you contend, you can you have to contend with. Contend with. At the end of the day, though, perhaps one of the biggest value adds I can bring is that I'm a trusted advisor to those mm-hmm. individuals at, that, at those critical times. And the trusted advisor's role can be one which um, is uh, is both reassuring, uh, it's calming, it's a calming influence, Liz, at a time which can often be uh, very, very stressful. And so when I look at um, those incidents, I think sometimes a very... Um, the the most important thing I can bring to those is that sense of calm, because as you would appreciate in these crisis situations, um, a calmness to the discussion, uh, transparency about what's to occur, and some of this is some of what's about to occur is not nice, uh, was not good to hear, but a calmness and transparency around that can actually begin to slow down the uh, the sense of the crisis actually and it's actually in that with that uh, sense of a change of pace that much more um, cogent much more sensible decisions can take place so I see the law changing and I see the role of the lawyer changing and and it's so interesting Cam I mean lawyers in a sense have probably always been trusted advisors in different contexts over time but this seems to have a different type of there's a, it, it, there's a different level of uncertainty in some regard, it seems. There's a different level of urgency or threat. Am I wrong in saying that? Is it? Are we training lawyers to understand how to build both the competency to understand the implications of technology in terms of how it applies to the law or how the law can be used to support or protect people from um, challenges that emerge you know, in the context of cyber? Or yeah, is this something look, that you've acquired with age? Like, Cam, how have you positioned yourself to sort of build out that skill set? Yeah, <laughs> that's such a great question because um, and there's no playbook really here. And for me, um, much of my uh, my knowledge, if you like, or comes comes through experience. And because technology is moving so quickly and, and in the cyber landscape, because the threat is moving uh, quickly, I think we have to acknowledge that we're, in many respects, we're building the plane as we're flying it. Uh, and so that level of ambiguity and uncertainty around how we behave in these circumstances is very, very challenging. But when I look at, just take, for example, the, uh, a significant cyber incident. Say, for example, let's, for argument's sake, talk about a ransomware attack. And the role, say, a lawyer would play in a ransomware incident uh, for a company. I look at the things that that company might have to make decisions on in the first sort of six hours of the event. Of the event. When you discover, when you get that call from your IT department saying um, that there is a, um, the, there are components of the IT ecosystem that aren't behaving uh, appropriately, and then when you realize that you may in fact be subject to a, a, a cyber attack of significance, then you have to do a number of things very, very quickly. You have to obviously engage and stand up a crisis management team. And that will include lawyers, of course, uh, forensics, uh, IT support, um, PR support, comm support. That has to be stood up almost immediately. You have to make critical decisions around things like containment or recovery when it comes to the nature of the incident. 
do you prioritize speed of recovery against um, this a potential to have a security vulnerability if you do so uh, quickly? And so there's a balance there. Um, we have, of course, uh, impacted jurisdictions. And whether we think it's a domestic incident or not, our information, your information, mine and yours is here, there and everywhere. And so we are invariably dealing with a multi-jurisdictional issue. And therefore, we are obviously in, uh, dealing with um, multi-jurisdictional regulators in this space. So that's a few decisions. And of course, you throw on top of that insurance, cyber insurance related issues, communications, things like proactive, reactive media, informing staff, informing um, uh, state key stakeholders, uh, making decisions around really different corporate decisions. Do I engage or do I not engage with a criminal threat actor? That is not a decision that's often put in front of a, a board or a, a management team or a company. That is not, there is not a sort of a history or corporate history of dealing with that type of, uh, of threat. Do you engage with this threat actor and how? And do you make do you step to the, uh, um, or get to that point where you're actually deciding that you may even entertain the payment of a ransom? Again, it's not a decision that many organizations have dealt with in the past. And so we're dealing with a very different dynamic. And then of course, if you, when you throw in a very complex key stakeholder um, uh, environment for most organizations, it becomes very complex. But the reason why I've, I set it out that way, because every one of those things from engagement to containment, to impacted jurisdictions, to insurance, comms, engagement with the threat actors, dealing with stakeholders, all of those, Liz, in one way or another, have a legal element to it. And so unbeknownst really to me, as I've come into this space, particularly in the last sort of three to four years, um, I've found myself front and center in these discussions. And that's where um, we have to start to redesign, if you like, the role of the lawyer in this space. It's not just about opining on the law. It's about providing strategic advice and a trusted advisor in, a, in the role of a trusted advisor. And then when you ask the question, are we educating, teaching, training people along that path? It's a really hard thing to do and draw a line in the sand and say, yes, we're doing okay at this particular point in time because this threat is evolving so quickly. And so it's incumbent on us, it's incumbent on me as a practitioner in this place, it's incumbent on me as someone who's also involved in the education of um, the next generation of lawyers to help them understand this ecosystem, help them get comfortable with ambiguity, constant change, that they will come across things which they will not have seen before. It won't be sitting in a textbook necessarily. And you'll be asked to, to take upon or take on a role which you may never have expected to do so. But quite frankly, Liz, it's a very privileged role. It's that ability to be in that position helping corporate Australia or, or state or federal government um, tackle this um, really insidious uh, sort of issue, really. And it's really a privilege to be in that place. And I'm, I'm grateful for, through good management, when you look at a, an environment like this, uh, to find myself in that position, I, I, I'm, I'm privileged. So if I, can, if I can help those that are coming through the system understand the dynamic nature of what we do, both in cyber and technology generally, that that goes a long way. And that's what we do, of course, when we educate or we look to educate through the, the role that I have in the Melbourne Law School, for example.
And Cam, it, it strikes me, you know, the scenario that you've just explained that has to unfold in the event of a serious cyber attack in the midst of uncertainty, confusion and probably fear sounds extraordinary. I know that recently you've been speaking, you know, to a number of boards about level of preparedness. Where do you think Corporate Australia is around understanding and planning for anticipating the sorts of attacks that you're talking about and being able to move with the certainty and the sort of, you know, clarity that you've suggested is necessary? Look, I think the maturity level differs um, uh, materially and um, and it often differs based regrettably on ability to fund uh, investment in this space, whether it is a technology-related investment or whether it's in people or whether it's in advisors, et cetera. So um, for me, uh, there is a large there is a broad spectrum of maturity across organisations and boards more generally. I do observe, though, that the boards that I speak to, they are very engaged. Um, they understand the nature of the threat. They are very cognizant of the role that they have to play. They don't have to look too far because there's a, a, um, a hunger games of regulators buzzing around this area in some respects at the moment, pointing the finger consistently at boards and boards being the, 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 um, uh, the final uh, or at least ultimately responsible for uplift and security in this sort of space. So I think the messages are coming through, but uh, of course, these sort of matu the maturity takes a while to evolve and I think we are still evolving. In fact, we remain uh, across uh, corporate Australia more broadly. There is uh, still a, a maturity issue at play. When you move, of course, Liz, beyond the top ASX or the well-funded ASX companies, which can, uh, which are often very mature, and some like, for example, in the financial services space, you can get some highly mature uh, organised organisations. We have to understand that most of our economy is actually made up of small and medium businesses. And then, Liz, I ask, I ask um, the open question, which is, if if our um, if our weakest link um, becomes the problem in this environment, because many of these small businesses serve our larger organisations as well, how do we uplift those organisations, particularly at a time when let's be let's be sort of frank and honest with each other, some are actually working out whether they are even surviving in a post-COVID environment. So where do they prioritise cyber in terms of um, investment decisions and the like? So really, really complicated uh, for uh, boards. Um, but I do say that um, the boards that I tend to engage with are very engaged, are very keen to upskill. They understand the nature of the role they want to learn. They they know that um, they need to be put in the position to uh, not just fulfil their duties because it's not just a legal issue. Um, most directors look at this, look at these their responsibilities and say, "I don't just want to be compliant." I mean, compliant. Yes, of course, we want to be compliant, but we want to be well beyond that because the reputation of our organisations are at stake, and even my reputation, if you like, as a director, is at stake. And so, it is. It is a challenging environment. It's different between boards. We are on a um, on a sort of maturity uh, evolution, or going through a maturity evolution, and there is a fair way to go. Regrettably. 
So, so Cam, um, it's fascinating to hear you. The, the challenge is ahead of us, isn't it? That fast nature, moving nature. You know, I'm sure yeah. as soon as everybody, as any um, organisation thinks it's on top of it, something new is emergent. Or so there's some new something coming out of left field. You can't anticipate. Um, and, and as you say, they're often in context of high stress. When you think of yourself, Cam, as a lawyer, as a senior lawyer, how did you start to develop the sort of, how did you get a sense of the computational aspects of technology? Like how did you get a sense, how did you deepen your own access to an understanding in order for you to play this role um, that you're playing with Corporate Australia? Now? Yeah, it's, that is such a great question, Liz, because um, you, you take me back to the mid-90s, really, when, when my career began. I hate to admit, um, uh, back in the mid-90s, and, and uh, those of us that were around during that period, as you know, we were um, the internet as we know it today, was, uh, looked nothing like. It was actually evolving mobile telephony. It was in its infancy. And so when I started my journey in technology, it was really around telecommunications because the platform businesses that we know well today that leverage um, the internet uh, more generally just did not exist. And so I found myself in, in the telecommunication space. And then, quite frankly, I sought to follow the trends. Uh, I worked hard at picking um, what I might call winners in terms of uh, in, term, in terms of those trends. I haven't always been successful at that. Um, we, of course, with the dot-com bubble bursting in, uh, in the early 2000s, we went into a little bit of a technology winter after that, um, and in recent times, of course, with the um, with the the way in which the internet has enabled all these new business models and platform businesses to take off, things have really taken off again, and they've taken off again, and of course, um, created associated risks with it. So I've followed that, I, I guess, technology landscape. Um, I, if you'd asked me when I started my career how it might evolve, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been able to foreshadow. Um, what I do love to do, though, Liz, is I love to build, build things, and I love to build things on the back of um, a, an underlying love of sort of technology and its enabling capability. It's the sort of um, attitude I think which drove me as a relatively young lawyer to take up a role with Gilbert and Tobin to open their Melbourne office the chance to grow something new um, in a firm that had uh, technology at its core. And it was the same uh, desire that drew me to the big four when I took up a role with PwC uh, to help them create their technology digital business and then move into cyber while I was at PwC. And now it's led me in, um, in, a, in a full circle, if I can call it that way, returning to a firm which I loved when I was here and have now the opportunity to be back here as a partner, um, helping the firm that I'm with, Herbert Smith Freehill, cement itself at the centre of this discourse. Um, and also, quite frankly, it's important when you go on these leadership journeys or that you recognise where you can give back to. And I'm not saying giving back necessarily in a charitable sense, but making a contribution to the discourse, as you put it. Um, and that can occur in a number of ways through conversations like this, um, through the work that I do with the Melbourne Law School, 
um, the uh, the advisory roles that I play. Um, so that ability to give back is just as important. Bottom line, I believe it's incumbent on all of us, particularly people like me who are close to this industry to bring an element of transparency to it because without that, how can we possibly expect this collective uplift without people understanding and, and knowing um, what the opportunities are, but also what the risks are associated with, with those opportunities. And so that's, that's really kind of how I've framed my leadership journey. It's meant I've gone on a little bit of a, meandering, a meandering journey through countries and, and, and worked in different organizations and quite frankly, worked in different parts of the law as technology has evolved. It's, um, it's so it's moving so quickly, Liz, and even in the cyberspace, the, the risk landscape that exists today is different from the risk landscape that will probably exist tomorrow. And and I, I don't say that with hyperbole or exaggeration because that's really how quickly these things can change. They can turn on a dime, really, in this space. So yeah, when you're a leader in the space, you've got to be ready to you got to be ready to adapt and move towards those those new sort of challenges. So that's a great segue into this this concept of the greater good, which is something the Menzies yeah. Foundation is deeply interested in. Um, you know, we really encourage people at all levels to really think about their purpose, yes. uh, to build their capability and contribute to the greater good, and we see that manifest from small to big acts, if that makes sense. Who am yep. I? Um, in my life, in terms of what I do and how do I contribute to the greater good, all the way to Cam, someone like you, partner in a, you know, renowned and well-regarded law firm, talking about your contribution to this collective good that's so yeah. fundamental for our society to function. One of the things that we were interested, that the foundation was interested in terms of supporting or working with Melbourne University was this nexus between the law and between the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology. And yes. um, in our conversations, even in the in the composition of the advisory board, it is quite extraordinary, Cam, how siloed some of the thinking and even the language is. And yet everything we've talked about today talks about the space in between. And I just wondered if you'd had any moments to reflect about, you know, perhaps as an outs someone from outside the law, it's easy to see the law as somewhat siloed, the language of the law, traditions of the law, the way the law is applied can sometimes be intimidating or not so easy to engage with, if I'm allowed to say that, Cam, which is probably a bit cheeky, but I just wonder right. about, you know, everything that you've talked about today about this collective good, the greater good, implies closer collaborations, more capacity to respect or work um, deeply with difference, I suppose, to find areas of commonality. Are you seeing, is cyber creating that sort of scenario? Are you seeing that coming together in new ways because, emerging technologies and cyber are changing the rules, so to speak. How do you sort of see that playing out? Certainly the blurring of lines between disciplines is becoming increasingly uh, clear for me. We don't have, I think it's naive to think that we operate, whether it's in, in any of these, in any profession or within a part of this profession, in a narrow and deep vertical. Um, I just don't think that is the way the world works uh, now, the blurring of lines between what we do and what others do that are working in adjacencies um, that are close to the law, risk advisory and um, and the like, um, are becoming increasingly blurred. So th that's the first thing. I think we have to appreciate that the 
the if we're going to make a contribution to the greater good, I think we have to appreciate and understand that we actually do have a broader role to play. So that's probably the um, the, the first thing uh, I'd say. Also, when you look within a law firm environment, traditional law firm environment, and I'm very encouraged about what happens here at Herbert Smith Freehills is that uh, the firm has recognised that technology is not a vertical, it cuts through all practice areas. It is the genuine um, uh, sort of horizontal, if I can put it that way. So it's not, it doesn't sit in a silo, it doesn't sit out to the side. It's relevant for um, a litigation practice, a competition practice, regulatory finance, M&A, uh, tech disputes, head office advisory, et cetera. All of those things have a technology uh, baseline which runs through all of them. And so I'm blessed in many respects that I get to play in a space that naturally cuts through all of those traditional um, practice areas. But it is a changing of thinking around organisations and how we structure ourselves to maximise that. So that uh, I accept that there's an evolution there. Uh, I also think that as lawyers, we're in a really unique position. We are generally involved uh, when material things occur. And those material things are sometimes good things, you know, helping companies um, buy and sell assets, um, you know, grow, et cetera, all of those, those great things. But we're also involved when things don't go so well. Um, a cyber incident's a good example, or a material dispute is, a, is another example. And so we are in a unique position where we um, find ourselves often at the center of those things. So I think it's incumbent on us, given the experience that we play in those, when things become material and significant, that we're able to recognize how they occur, um, and, and at least, like I said before, become a little bit more transparent about how to solve for these things. I also think because something like a cyber incident or technology more generally and that call upon uh, great lawyers to be trusted advisors means that you're not just a trusted advisor um, to your client, but you have a trusted role in society more more broadly. And that's where, of course, a more societal greater good comes from. We are often the gatekeepers in some respects to access to justice. And so when you talk about greater good, whether it's in the context of technology related issues or more generally, we do have a role to play. Um, and whether it's uh, accessing, providing access or enabling access to justice um, or things associated with that, we do as a profession have a role to play in that space. Luckily, technology is enabling that to occur at a way, in a way which is a lot easier than it would have been sort of even four or five years ago. So the greater good, uh, the question about the greater good and, and a broader societal impact, I, I think we're, uh, both uniquely placed and now uniquely enabled to make a broader contribution. So Cam, I mean, we clearly, the foundation clearly recognises you as a leader in your field. We're so grateful for the really important role you play in the advisory board and very, um, I'm really delighted to be partnering with the University of Melbourne to build out this platform for more considerations of some of the things we've touched on today. I just wonder in finishing, what advice would you give to younger lawyers? With you know, it is quite extraordinary, Cam, that you and I remember when I first heard the word Google, and it was a you know a surprising 
I'd never heard. Can you believe there was a time in people's lives when Google didn't exist? Like it's hard to imagine, isn't it? But you know, we, as you say, we've seen we've come from so little capability to a world which you could, you know, twenty or thirty years ago you could not have even imagined. When you see yeah. young lawyers coming um, or people aspiring to be in the law as they contemplate their future in the law, what advice would you give them, Cam, with the wisdom of the years and the currency of the work that you're doing now? There's probably a few things. First of all, I think it's imperative to keep an open mind about how your future is going to unfold, uh, not simply because the law is going to evolve and your careers will evolve, but uh, technology will um, accelerate those changes. So keep a very open mind. I also often say to law students as they come through, be cognizant that there are, there are a lot of pathways now. There, it's not just traditional law. It's not just big law. It's not um, necessarily working as a lawyer at all, but a legal education can take you in many, many different ways. And so there are so many pathways into other, um, other professions or other roles, if you like, but also other pathways that relate to the law. Um, very significant roles around technology and the, and the intersection between technology and the delivery of legal services. Um, I also try to reassure students in particular coming out that there are many different ways to reach your destination. Often when we go through um, formal education, we, we are often only exposed to, uh, to certain immediate destinations once we graduate. But if I'm anything to go by, if, if my experience and as a case study, I'm anything to go by, I can assure you, if you are committed to reaching um, the pinnacle or the peak of the legal profession and um, in aligned with a passion of yours, you will get there, but it may not be in the traditional way. And so there are many ways in which you can reach your final destination um, and your and it won't look anything like what you expected when you started started out. And probably that's my last point. Always um, go forth on the understanding that um, this environment is changing frequently. What you anticipate you'll be doing in three years' time, uh, maybe even in 18 months' time, will probably look quite different. Certainly what you'll be doing in five or 10 years' time will look very, very different. So to me, open mind, understanding the many pathways, um, appreciating that there are different ways to reach your career goals and destinations. There's not just one way. Um, and you will end up doing uh, and often doing things that you don't expect. And those are probably the things that will delight you the most, to be frank. Well, Cam, thank you so much for your time today. Um, as I said, we are so grateful of your contribution to the greater good, of your connection to the foundation. And we really appreciate having the opportunity to just get some insight into the way you're seeing the importance of this focus on emerging technologies in the law and also the contribution you're making to um, ensuring that the law is positioned in a way that it supports, um, you know, the future, I suppose, that we're all aspiring to. That genuinely sits at the heart of the greater good. So thanks very much. Yeah, Cameron. I share a similar sentiment around the work that you do and um, and the work with Menzies and obviously into the, uh, the contributions that you make into the broader ecosystem. There are a few, uh, there are a few individuals of your ilk um, working hard to sort of 
bring together uh, multiple disciplines, uh, a realization, if you like, you're a little bit like me, we're kind of looking two, three, four years ahead and saying, what's this ecosystem going to look like? Our role is to bring it all together. And you've managed to accelerate um, the meeting of those disciplines with the, with the contributions that you and your organization make. So the feel, feeling's very much mutual. Thank you, Ken.